You're listening to Food for the Future on 980 CFPL and 980CFPL.ca. Here's your host, Peggy O'Neill. I'm Peggy O'Neill, home economist and host of Food for the Future. Today, we return to the monthly series, City Farming, in which new ways to think about food in urban settings are discussed. This show will talk about pollination and attracting bees in urban settings. It's my pleasure to introduce April Schultz from the Pollinator Pathways Project right here in London. Welcome, April. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure to have you here. I'm really excited about the work you and your team are doing. So can you start us off with what is the Pollinator Pathways Project and what does it do? Yeah, absolutely. So Pollinator Pathways Project, like you mentioned, is a local organization uh, based in London with the mission to promote London as a pollinator sanctuary and provide Londoners with the resources and knowledge to create their own pollinator gardens. We were formed as a response to a lack of the pollinator pathways that are present in London and also as a response to the local effects of climate change. So our goal is, is really to help uh, the London communities recognize the important role that pollinators play in our everyday lives. We also want to ensure that there's an emphasis on the importance of actual pollinators. Oftentimes people tend to think of pollination as plant-driven, but really there's this whole world of pollinator species out there that we need to protect and that need our attention. And that's what we're here for, essentially. Wonderful. And the plants can only do so much on their own. They need the pollinators. Yeah, if you've ever looked exactly. around in springtime and see the bees and the birds and many other species that we're going to talk about in the show, uh, we definitely have a wonderful marriage with gardening and uh, in pollinators. Initiatives like the Pollinator Pathways Project are really, really important. And you had mentioned that we're London-based. And I'm wondering, are other cities across Canada or in the world active with promoting pollination? And if so, what's unique about the London Initiative? Yeah, absolutely. So it's really a worldwide movement. We're not the first organization or, or city to realize the importance of promoting and protecting our pollinator species. Uh, in Ontario alone, there are groups doing similar work to us in uh, Guelph, Peterborough, Mississauga, Hamilton, uh, and more, honestly. Like, sometimes it's not similar groups, it's the city promoting it as well. You know, we, so we do do similar work with these other organizations, but something that is important to us in London is the pathways itself. So in our organization's name, Pollinator Pathways Project, we try to put an emphasis on pathways. So while it is important to grow these natural areas and increase gardens across the city, we need to ensure there's this natural pathway for pollinators to, to really travel across the city. So there's a social aspect of pollinators that's really just as important as their, the ecological aspect for them. So rather than, you know, in the east end of London having a big garden and then way in the west end of London having a big garden, we need to ensure that the pollinators can move across the city. So it's important that in every neighborhood, people are building these pollinator gardens and, e and even downtown in spaces that are primarily you know, concrete based, it's still important to have gardens there as well. Wonderful. So a coordinated, integrated plan. And so what are pollinator protection, you know, municipal rules or guidelines generally? What do they include? Generally, things like that include um, limiting the amount of pesticides that are used um, or maybe, you know, only allowing pesticides to be used by companies, not by individuals. Um, pesticides have a big and insecticides have a big impact on pollinators. Um, um, so that's that's a type of potentially policy that can come up in city planning. Um, Another one is to have a certain percentage of canopy cover required for a city. Canopy cover is essentially the geographical area of the, the canopy of our trees and how much that covers of the city. So that helps pollinators as well. Just trees still 
have flowers and and produce flowers in the spring. So, but that's just a couple examples I think of ways that cities can help manage the pollinator population. Okay, that's really really helpful and good to know. And then my second question is you you've been talking about pathways, it's in the title of the project and I wonder that might not be something that listeners or myself would understand fully. What are pathways for pollinators? Essentially, I guess an easy way to describe it would kind of be like describing our road system, right? If you need to get from one place to another, you obviously have to take take a road. And let's say, for example, you're driving, you know, really far all the way to Ottawa. You need to ensure there's places that you can stop to to use the washroom and pick up food. So it's it's kind of maybe stay overnight somewhere. And it's kind of the same thing for pollinators. They if they're going from one place to another, and if we want them to pollinate our gardens, we have to ensure that there's places for them to stop along the way. So to do that, we need to make sure houses and individuals and streets along the way have plants and, and trees that they can pollinate. It's really just like a, a road for them with stops along the way. Okay, great. And those roads are attractions. So trees, yes. flowers, and things that we're going to talk about, uh, that exactly. really makes sense in there. So we want to just be sure that we have enough of that because we really want a flourishing food supply and the pollinators are part of them. So let's shift our attention then now, uh, April, to pollinator species. Um, we are thinking about the bees and bees have had a lot of attention, but there are more than that. So can you let us know what are pollinator species and give us some examples? Yeah, so pollinator species are really any animal or insect that assist in pollination of our plants. Um, like, like you just mentioned, when people think of pollinators, bees are the first one to come to mind. But there's actually a lot more species that help with pollination and some of them you might not initially realize actually do help. Um, so, of course, we have bees, butterflies, moths, different insects, beetles, um, but animals like squirrels, chipmunks, birds, and even some bats also help with pollination. Um, there is more than just insects, which is important, I think, when you're building your gardens to, to take that into account. And also when you see these species on your property or around town, like you, you have to think of them as more than just, I know some people think of squirrels as pests, but they do help. They are a pollinator species for us as well. Okay, so that's really helpful to know and expands our definition of what to support. And also, as we're going to talk about a little bit later in the show, the types of things to attract and build and foster those pathways you were talking about. But pollination, how does that work and what's its role in the food system? I can essentially describe it as the first step that allows for seed formation in plants. And if that plant produces food, then the first step in food production Plants rely on movement, you know, they're stuck in the ground, they can't pollinate themselves. So uh, wind, water, and animals and insects um, are required to pollinate. And of course, in our food system, many of our crops rely on pollinators to complete this vital step of food production and allow our own plants to produce food. It's necessary for pollinators to, to be around and help us produce that food. Okay, so they have a critical role in the food system and very significant when we take a look at certainly the vegetables you talked about. The project has been around for a little while and I'm wondering if you could share some of your statistics about pollinators in our region and some of the successes that uh, you can report on at this point. So obviously honeybees are the bees that I think are talked about in the news, um, but they're actually an introduced species that is often met with controversy as um, if we focus on those populations, the native bee populations decline. Despite that, uh, and unfortunately, managed honeybee hives have really been taking a hit uh, the last couple of years and are experiencing huge losses in their species, um, around 30 to 40% each year. 
So that's absolutely unfortunate. By increasing our native pollinator habitats, we'll increase our native pollinator population, and that will help offset this honeybee loss. So, so really creating those environments which foster the full life cycle of the pollinators, which then fosters the full life cycle of our plants and other things. And we then have food and we can have a future that is full of all the varieties of things that we love to eat. And when we think of pollination, um, April, we often think of spring and a new growing season and the future comes to mind. How can we restore the critical habitat to help pollinators thrive? Honestly, a, a great way to help restore critical habitat is just like a, an average person is to volunteer with local environmental organizations. And you can also uh, limit the amount of grass you have at your house. Grass is a monoculture, which essentially just means it's it's one species that takes over an entire area. Uh, and it really doesn't help our pollinators thrive. Um, you know, it doesn't produce flowers. It's It just kind of exists there. Uh, instead, you could, if you have a lawn, you could replace it with native clover. Um, you could extend your garden out into your lawn, uh, or you could just take out your lawn altogether or have your whole front of your house be a full garden or even your backyard. Another one is in the fall, you can leave the leaves, so to speak. So when your trees drop their leaves, instead of breaking them up, leaving them on the ground actually allows a safe space for pollinators to overwinter. Um, so it helps protect them over the winter. And, you know, if you must rake, you can rake your leaves into a pile in the corner of your yard. It's still providing habitat for them. Something for everyone. Uh, yeah. What I loved in your answer, April, is that and what is so exciting is we can do something about this. Um, that we have some information and we can respond. And the incredible thing about nature is it's so forgiving. You know, you yes. can bring a species back. You can get something to grow in the next season. You can attract more birds. So it's a really wonderful message when I think we're all looking for what we can do. You know, there's um, many concerns and we're not always sure what our role is. And so that's really, really, really helpful. And I can't wait to hear more after the break when we talk about some specific strategies for gardening with April Schultz from Pollinator Pathways Project. This is Food for the Future, and I'm your host, Peggy O'Neill, home economist. Welcome back to Food for the Future on 980CFPL and 980CFPL.ca. Here's your host, Peggy O'Neill. Welcome back to Food for the Future. I'm your host, Peggy O'Neill, home economist. We've been speaking about pollination and attracting bees with April Schultz from the Pollinator Pathways Project. April, we talked before the break about pollination and various pollination species and building pathways and central to the success of, of all of this is making sure that plants and gardens and green spaces are available to uh, foster all of this great regenerative work that can be done right in our city limits. What kinds of gardens and lot sizes do you need a certain amount of space to help attract pollinators? As I've mentioned, gardens which have native plant species in them are a great way to attract pollinators. It's important to include many different types of plants so you can attract all these different pollinators. And of course, you know, butterflies are attracted to different flowers than hummingbirds and bees. Um, and then another important thing is to try to have your uh, garden bloom from spring to fall. Uh, so by that, I mean you have plants that are blooming in the spring, you have different plants that are blooming in the summer, and then you have different plants that are blooming in the fall. So you're really providing support to our pollinators across all three of those seasons. You know, there are flowers that pop up in the, in the summer and the fall as well. In terms of size of gardens, as long as you have a one meter by one meter space, you're, you're good to build a pollinator garden. So you really don't need that large of a space. It can be quite small. 
Wow. It's not that much. So you can really create an impact in a small space. And um, also probably when you're talking about that small space, a couple of planter pots that you can still do something to help attract this amount of pollinators that we're going to need. That's really, really helpful. And I was also noticing when I was looking and doing my research for the show on your website, April, that there's something about Carolinian seeds that we all need to know about. And what are they? And why are they important for us to know about in this region? Yeah, so in London, um, we are actually in what's known as the Carolinian climate slash vegetation zone. So that means the climate, the, the flora, the fauna, so the plants and animals of our area um, differ from other places in Canada. So they even differ from other places in Ontario. We actually have a lot of biodiversity. If you, refer, if you hear someone referring to Carolinian seeds, essentially that means Carolinian plants. So plants that grow naturally and are native to our area uh, without human intervention. They'll just grow uh, on their own. Um, so to attract the most native pollinators, we must ensure that their natural food and their natural habitat exists within our area. Um, and, you know, there's, uh, like I mentioned, there's a huge list of, of herbaceous plants and species that you can plant in your garden. And just like to help you get started, there's, you could plant brown-eyed Susans. They're quite a pretty flower. Asters have really nice, colorful flowers in the spring. Uh, columbine, milkweed, which you might have heard of before. It's the only plant that monarchs are attracted to. So Carolinian seeds are essentially just Carolinian species. Okay, that's really, really helpful to know. And we have listeners uh, um, in other parts of Ontario across Canada and actually other parts of the world as well. So the message is look for your local pollinator groups and find out what region you're in and look for plants that are native to the area so that it makes sense you'll attract native pollinator species as well. That's really, really helpful. And it gives us really a strategy. So for some of the Carolinian seeds, can you find information on the Pollinator Pathways Project or where can listeners in our area, listeners elsewhere, will need to check their own zones, uh, find out about it? Yeah, so we have some resources on our site. Um, we have a whole list of uh, species that you can pick and we you know, tell you which um, habitat they grow best in um, and then also when they bloom as well. So we have that whole list on our site. We also have examples of where you can buy some Carolinian seeds um, in Ontario and in London. Fantastic. So lots of help from Pollinator Pathways Project and other pollinator groups across the world. Um, April, just want to shift gears a tiny bit now that we add the humanities, so philosophy, history, creativity, foundations, to today's food dialogue. And how do these approaches relate to attracting bees and other pollinator species in urban settings? Well, in terms of history, we, we have to ensure that the plants that we grow, um, as we were talking about with the Carolinian seeds, are native and historical to this area. In terms of creativity, this is already something we are seeing in urban settings. Um, beehives have been added to uh, downtown buildings on their roof to help attract bees. Um, green roofs, which uh, is exactly how it sounds, you know, roofs of cement buildings um, having plants and trees on them have been created to help combat the effects of climate change, but also they assist our pollinators. Uh, and with the approach that we use, the pathways approach, creating these pathways to ensure our pollinators are able to move around the city um, requires creativity and requires uh, participation from, from everyone. 
Wonderful. So sky's the limit in terms of ideas. And so I'm looking forward to seeing how our city and cities across the nation and the world respond to attracting pollinators with all the creative things. So the show is also called Food for the Future, April. And how does promoting pollination in urban settings help us find the way forward together? Well, a lot of our food would not be possible without the help of our pollinators. Um, and as the impact of climate change, including things like higher temperatures, lack of rain, increasingly powerful storms um, continue, our growing seasons uh, will be shortened, our crops will suffer, and you know, thus our pollinators will suffer. So having a pathway of pollinator gardens across urban areas will help ensure that our pollinators have the habitat to survive. So by having so many of these gardens, you know, statistically, despite these effects, uh, some of them will survive and some of them will be fine. So it's really important to just increase the number so they can still help uh, our pollinators. That's really interesting and very helpful. Like we were talking earlier in the show about the social dynamics of the pollinators themselves, but we're kind of rounding out the show with our community and communities across the nation and the world that we need each other. Maybe something failed in my garden, and even if it is a native species, but we know while our neighbors are doing it, our communities are doing it, we're vitalizing urban uh, space. And a lot of organizations are starting to, you know, think about the green roofs or um, having more green space. So we really need each other. And that's, a, I think, a really important message for us all to remember as uh, the world gets very busy and digital that we still need each other. And I'm wondering, April, do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, I do. Actually, I wanted to mention one of our larger projects that we have going on right now that actually kind of aligns with your question about philosophy, history, and creativity. Um, so we have a project called the Dundas Street Pathway. Um, we're working with businesses along Dundas Street in London, of course, uh, to increase pollinator space and create a pathway in downtown London. So we have two gardens at either end of Dundas Street, uh, one at Western Fair and one at Museum London. And then we're also adding three more gardens as well. And we also have planter boxes at, I think it's around 40 businesses across Dundas Street. So if you're on Dundas Street, you might see these planter boxes outside of businesses with native species growing in them. Um, so that's one of those things that's helping to connect these permanent gardens to allowing pollinators to move across Dundas Street. It's more important now than ever to support local businesses and community spaces in London. So definitely encourage people to get out in Dundas Street and support our local businesses and maybe you'll see some of our pollinator boxes as well. Um, I didn't mention, but we're a fully volunteer organization. Um, we occasionally uh, have interns working with us. So someone is ending their eight month long internship with us today, but otherwise everyone else with our organization is a volunteer. So um, we are certainly very grateful for the team. And if anyone is interested in being a gardener or wants to get more experience on communications and social media, or wants to get more experience like um, being almost like a manager of volunteers and being one of our core group. Um, I certainly encourage anyone listening to reach out to us uh, on social media at Pollinator Pathways Project or visit our website. But yeah, we are always looking for, for more help and continue our impact in London. Perfect. So big shout out to Western Fair, uh, Museum London, and 40 or so businesses local on Dundas Street that have these native species to attract pollinators. If you happen to see any and go into the building uh, or into the business, rather, uh, give a big shout out and say thank you and also um, support them. So fantastic. And also wonderful volunteer opportunities, uh, but really worthy projects that can really help a lot of people do a lot of good. April, thank you very much for our inspiring conversation today. Congratulations to you and the entire team at Pollinator Pathways Project for all that you do for our community and the positive message that you're putting out into the world. 
thank you so much for for this opportunity. I really hope um, your listeners found inspiration or hope in what we talked about today and are, are maybe inspired to, no matter where they live, start a pollinator garden and start to appreciate and support our native species. So thank you. Thank you very much, April. And I'm sure people will be hopeful. I know that my heart has grown several sizes since the, <laughs> the show. So thank you very, very much. Today on Food for the Future, we've been speaking with April Schultz from the Pollinator Pathways Projects about pollination and attracting pollinator species, including bees. Each week, we leave you with something to talk about and something to do. Something to talk about, what could you grow to help attract pollinators in our region? Something to do, visit pollinatorpathwaysproject.com to find out how to start a pollinator garden, volunteer, and much more. Next week on the show, we return to the series, Back to the Future. We'll talk with Danny Jeffries, president of the Ilderton Agricultural Society about fall fairs and celebrating local agriculture and farmers. I'm your host, Peggy O'Neill, home economist, and you've been listening to the weekly show, Food for the Future. Thank you to our platinum level sponsors, Burn Bray Farms, Eggs for Life, and the Middlesex London Food Policy Council. Food for the Future with Peggy O'Neill airs every Saturday at 8.30 on 980 CFPL and 980 CFPL.ca.